podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router. And any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast. Today is Wednesday. It is the 4th of October. Hope you're all well. You're surely better than Manchester United or Arsenal fans after last night. Um, For those of you who are Arsenal or Manchester United fans, Arsenal have nothing really to worry about in their group. United have a lot to worry about, and we'll get into it. Uh, We'll start off Union Berlin 2 Sporting Braga 3. Berlin are in a horrible run of form. They haven't won since late August. They've got Dortmund up next. They're not playing anything close to the level they're capable of. 
and they're playing their Champions League games basically away from home using the Olympia Stadium in Berlin as opposed to their own arena. Uh, they went 2-0 up last night. Geraldo Becker gets both goals. Seiko Niakata gets one back for Braga before half time. Bruma equalized on 51. And then a late, late Andre Castro goal gives Braga an unlikely but fully deserved victory. And for Union, they need to figure out what's gone wrong. You look at how they started the season. They beat Astoria Waldorf 4-0 in the first round of the Cup. Then they beat Mainz 4-1. Then they beat Darmstadt 4-1. Then they lose 3-0 to Leipzig, 2-1 to Wolfsburg, 1-0 to Real Madrid, 2-0 to Hoffenheim, and then 1-0 to Heidenheim. So having won their first three games of the season, inclusive of last night, you're looking at six losses in a row. And that's very, very concerning. And they sit bottom of their group in the Champions League and they're 11th in the Bundesliga, which is very disappointing for them. Braga have made a promising start. They'll be delighted with how last night went. And considering they gave Napoli a really tough game in the first group stage match, I think they'll fancy their chances of if not sneaking into the knockout phases, certainly finishing third and getting themselves a spot in the Europa League. Uh, they haven't had the best of starts in the Premier League, but they're fifth. They're only three points off, off third, which is Porto. They would expect to jump Boa Vista, who've started out really well, kind of a surprise to everybody. But Braga's defence has been quite poor so far this year. 13 goals conceded in the league. And when they went 2-0 down, it kind of felt like they were about to get a bit of a chasing, but they managed to work their way back into it and end up winning the game. Red Bull Salzburg, nil. Real Sociedad, two. Mikel Oyarzabal and Bryce Mendes with first half goals. Really good win for Real Sociedad. And they will be very, very confident that they can carry this form on and get out of this group, having drawn the first game with Inter, now picking up a win away from home. They've still got Salzburg to come at home and two games against Benfica, which, if they can split them, should see them through with a win over Salzburg in that second game. In the other game in that group, it was... Inter won Benfica nil. Marcus Turam with the only goal of the game. Uh, Benfica currently th- uh, second in in the league, but quite uneven. And their Champions League performances have not been good. So worrying times a little bit for Benfica. They sit bottom of the group. They lost to Salzburg at home, remember, first time out. And the defeat to Inter is not a surprise, but They need to start picking up points, and those two games against Sociedad are going to be really, really tough. Uh, PSV 2, Sevilla 2. Goodell scores on 68 to put Sevilla 1 up, and it looks like they're going to see the game out, but a Luke de Jong penalty on 26 draws PSV level. 
a minute later, Yusuf and Naziri scores to give Sevilla the lead. And again, it looks like they're going to hold out. But in the 95th minute, Jordan Teze equalizes and rescues a point for PSV. Copenhagen 1, Bayern Munich 2. Lucas Lerager with the opener for Copenhagen, who gave Bayern, who gave Bayern, give Bayern, who gave Bayern a lot of problems. Opened up their defense a couple of times. Kim had a very, very strong game. Upa McCannell next to him did not have a good game. Jamal Musiala equalized on 67 minutes. Lovely quick feed outside the box. Creates the space for himself and finish as well. Matthias Tell gets Byron's winner in the 83rd minute. Byron are making tougher work of this group than they should be. Uh, this goal, the winning goal, was credit to Harry Kane for the flick on. Credit to Thomas Muller showing a turn of pace I didn't know he still had. Really good strength. Great composure and decision-making, which you're always going to expect from Thomas Muller. It's a solid win for Byron. Copenhagen played really, really well. And Byron get out of there with three points. Uh, Napoli 2, Real Madrid 3. So Napoli go 1-0 up. Leo Ostergaard with a header after a Kavicha corner, which Kepa flapped at. Nathan, Nathan, Nathan will go with because there's no H. Uh, heads against the bar. Kepa is nowhere to be seen. Ostergaard leaps, powers in the header. It's 1-0 to Napoli. Vinicius Jr. equalised on 27 minutes from a tight angle. I wouldn't like my goalkeeper getting beat from that angle, but Vinny's as good as there is in that role. Good assist in that one for Jude Bellingham. Bellingham himself scores the second. Again, Bellingham does really well, but it's really poor defending. Bellingham does everything he can do to get in, to the box, beat a couple of men, create a little bit of space and separation and get his shot off. But in that sort of tight space, I want my defence doing a lot more. Uh, Zielinski scored a penalty to equalise on 54 minutes. This was one of the more ridiculous penalties you're ever likely to see. The ball deflects in a tackle up onto Nacho's hand. Nacho's prone on the ground. There's just no way this is a penalty, but it gets given anyway. And up steps Zielinski and he scores. And I thought we were going to end up with a draw. And a draw would have been a fair result. Both sides had chances, but it was a very even game. But on 78 minutes, the ball broke from a set piece to Fede Valverde. He is roughly 25 yards out. He hits that ball about as hard as it's possible to hit a football. It bangs off the crossbar, hits Murray in the back of the head and ends up in the net. It goes down as a Murray own goal, obviously, but what a shot by Fede Valverde. Incredible. Good win for Real away in Naples. Napoli need to get their act together. Their season is starting to drift away from them already. Rudy Garcia is not a particularly good manager. Uh, Lens 2, Arsenal 1. Arsenal go 1-0 up through Gabriel Jesus on 14 minutes. And that was a deserved start. Lens had had a couple of moments before that where maybe it looked like they might threaten. But Arsenal, I thought, were good value for their lead. Then, 11 minutes later, lovely quick counterattack by Lens. Incredible layoff 
by LUI. Like, this is one of the best assists you're ever likely to see. And Tomasin's finish is spectacular. As the ball, I don't know if you'd call it bouncing or bobbling, probably a little bit too low to be bouncing, more of a bobble. He catches it perfectly and just bends it with perfect control around the dive of David Rea and into the far corner. It is a sensational goal. Then comes the moment that maybe changes the game. Because to them, it's Arsenal the better team. But Bakayo Saki gets injured on 34 minutes. And if he has any sort of a knock that's going to keep him out of the Premier League for a couple of weeks, now at least the international break is coming. So there will be that time after this weekend. But City play, or Arsenal play City this weekend. And City were missing Rodri. So that made it a much more even game. If Saka is missing, it's very much advantage City again. You'd hope that maybe he was taken off last night as a precaution, but he was limping. So we'll have to wait and see what happens from that. I haven't seen an update yet, so I don't know if there's been any any injury update. Um, Second half starts. Again, it's a fairly even game. Bryce Samba makes a couple of really good saves. But then Wahi scores in the 69th minute to put Lens ahead. Um, Good break down the right-hand side. Lovely cross into the middle. And Wahi finishes really well first time. But what was impressive with this was actually his movement. Because as he's running into the box, he's running with William Saliba about a yard away. And rather than try and get across in front of Saliba or, you know, move to the ball, he just slows himself down. Just shows that patience and that awareness, which you don't often see from strikers as young as him, to just slow down on the edge of the box. Cross comes in. He's got now got three yards of space from Saliba, who has no idea that why he hasn't kept running, because Saliba doesn't have great awareness. As good and all as he is in the ball, he's quite a flawed defender. Wahi finishes brilliantly. It's a really good goal. And from there, again, Arsenal knocked on the door a couple of times. But I, I felt like Lens deserved to see it out and get the win. Reese Nelson maybe should have scored. Maybe should have scored kind of late, late goal, late, late equaliser. But it didn't take his chance. Uh, so a disappointing result for Arsenal, but having won the first game, they're still in a strong position. And you'd still fancy them to come out of what should be a, you know, should be a straightforward group. Um, finally then, Manchester United 2, Galatasaray 3 at Old Trafford. In what is a borderline disastrous disastrous result for United. So Rasmus Hoysland puts them one up on 17 minutes after really good work from Marcus Rashford. Six minutes later, Wolf Saha equalizes in what is just comedic defending, but it's impressive from Zaha. It's a long thump down the field by Davinson Sanchez. Diogo Delo is marking 
Wilf Zaha very, very closely, almost in his shirt. There's a lot of pulling and dragging. Zaha is nearly falling on the floor, and yet he still manages to bully Delo. The ball bounces a couple of times. Zaha times it, swings his left foot at it, mistimes the connection. The ball hits Delo's leg, bounces and heads into the top corner of the net. And in fairness to Galatasaray, they reacted so well to going one behind. They, they did deserve their equaliser. But then United were the better team. From here for the next... 40 minutes anyway, United were the better team. 45 minutes, probably. They have a goal disallowed. Hoyland was offside. Then Hoyland himself scores a second goal. Um, picks the ball up on the halfway line after Davinson Sanchez slips. And basically runs through unopposed. It's a, it's a lovely, tidy finish over the goalkeeper. But nobody made a challenge. Nobody got close enough to make a challenge. But it's a good finish, good composure from the young player. On 71 minutes then, United are just... I don't want to come on this podcast every single week and just hammer Andre Onana. But Jesus wept, it doesn't help himself. So, Onana, as I said before they signed him and when they signed him, he's poor on crosses... And he's not a very good shot stopper. He's a good athlete. And he can make spectacular saves, but he he lets in simple goals. And not only that, he tends to parry the ball back into dangerous areas. And United fans pushed back on this and said, well, the reason we're signing him is he's incredible with his feet. He's the best goalkeeper around with his feet. So you can go on YouTube, it's freely available, and you can find plenty of errors he's made with his feet. But this is this is an enormous one. I mean, it's it's just so simple. He has the ball, he has time, he has space. He could just punt it up the field and clear his lines. He just gives it away on the edge of his own box, just plays it straight to a Galatasaray player. Actor Coglu, latches on. Finishes really well, and it's 1-1. And United just get completely rattled by this. And they just start giving the ball away cheaply. On 77 minutes, Casemiro commits the foul in the penalty area. Penalty, second jello, off he goes. Penalty to Galatasaray, United down to 10 men. This is a disaster. You would think at this moment... Maybe even an attempt to freeze the kicker, as they say in the National Football League. That Eric Ten Hag would look to his bench and maybe bring on, you know, another presence in midfield. But no, he sits on his hands. Lucky for him, Icardi misses the penalty anyway. But you would think again, he's going to make a change here. He's not just going to roll with, Casemiro with with uh, with Casemiro off, so he's got Hannibal Mejbri and Mason Mountain midfield. That's not what he's going to do, surely. In fact, was Mejbri gone off by that point? He was. 
So he had Ericsson and Mason Mount in midfield. Ericsson and Mason Mount in midfield. He's brought off Rashford to bring on Garnacho. But you would think, like, you look at the bench, you think, well, Scott McTominay could come on, a bit of physicality. Johnny Evans, maybe Maguire, they could come on and just, you know, go to a back three. Or play Evans as a tucked-in left back and you put Amrabat into midfield as a ball winner. Instead, he does nothing. And four minutes later, it's just more shocking defending by Amrabat. Davinson Sanchez heads the ball aimlessly, really. Icardi looks a mile offside until you realise Amrabat, playing out of position at left-back, is about 15 yards behind the rest of his, the rest of his defensive line. And Icardi just picks it up, runs on through. And they say, when you're one-on-one as a goalkeeper, make yourself as big as possible. That's what you do. You make yourself as big as possible. What does he do? He basically lies down on the floor. And Icardi just dinks it over him. If he just stands up, it's the easiest save in the world. But he doesn't. He lies down. They also tell you, make the striker beat you. Don't make the decision for him. Wait for him to make a decision and then react. Instead, he just lies down on the floor. Nicardi lifts it over him and it's 3-2 to Galatasaray. And Ten Hag is in a stinker here. An absolute stinker. The, for starting with the lineup, Amrabat at left back. There is, there's no left back, there's no right back at the club over the age of 17 that you could throw in who'd be better at full back than a slow midfielder. None. Because the low can play either side. So it doesn't even have to be a left back. It could be a right back. You're telling me that at Manchester United Football Club, there's no other fullbacks available? Let us have a look and see what they have available to them. Manchester United. Manchester United. Because remember, the Champions League, you can play these younger players. Even if they're not fully registered. I mean, you could play Scott Scott McTominay at right back because at least he's played in defence before. He's got a bit of speed about him. Let's see now. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, Dan Gore has filled in a fullback in his career. Maxi Oyedeli couldn't have filled in. He couldn't have played. No. 18-year-old fullback. Been there a long time. He couldn't have filled in. There's, there's nobody at the club that could have fi- couldn't have filled in. You, you just didn't have anybody. Reese Bennett couldn't have filled in. Sam Murray. None of these players could do a better job than a fella who'd never played fullback in his life until about two weeks ago. And who was awful at the weekend, it should be pointed out. United fans will cry about injuries. But United's best front six is Casemiro and Eriksen as a double pivot. Both of them were available to the manager last night. Bruno was a 10. He was available to the manager last night. 
Rashford on the left, Garnacho on the right. They were both available last night. And Heusland up front. You could even do it as a 4-3-3 if you wanted to. But those six players were all available last night. As was Mason Mount. As was Anthony Martial. As was Anthony. As was Palestri. The only two attackers that they're missing last night from that entire group is Sancho, who the manager's refusing to pick, and Ahmed Diallo, who's actually injured. But all of your midfield options, including Amrabat, fit and available, there to play. Hannibal Mejri, Mejri too, obviously he started. They're all available. Scott McTominay, available. You had all those options. And instead, you went with Mejbri, Casemiro, and Mount as a midfield three. And Bruno Fernandes stuck out in the right wing. Completely wasted. In defence, Delo is the best right-back at the club. Now, it's it's a low bar, but he's the better right-back, better all-round right-back. Obviously, Wan-Bissak is a better 1v1 defender, but Delo is the better all-round player. Rafa Varane is the best centre-back at the club. For my money, Lindelof is the best sec- the second best centre-back at the club. And the record without Martinez shows that they're a better team without him. So you've got your best pair of centre-backs and your best right-back. You've also got your first-choice goalkeeper. So the only thing you're missing is your left-back. Now, admittedly, you're also missing your backup left-back and your third-choice left-back, as well as your backup right-back. So I do have a hint a hint of sympathy there. But when you choose to play Amrabat over the other options, which, again, Lindelof could have played right back. Johnny Evans or Maguire could have played centre back. McTominay could have played right back. You could have called up one of the kids. You had other options. You did not need to play Amrabat at right back. Or at left back, rather. You could have played a bunch of different people and gotten away with it. Because DeLoe could play left back. So if it was Lindelof at right back, DeLoe at left back, Varane plus one at centre back, I mean, that would be a lot better than this crap. So I have no sympathy overall for for this manager. United have now lost five games this season. Four in the Premier League plus this one. Sorry, six games this season? I think they've lost six games this season. They've lost both of their Champions League games. They lost to Tottenham. To Arsenal, to Brighton. Yeah, they've lost six games this season. Six. They have played ten. Inclusive of a League Cup game. That's not good. That's not good at all. And now they've got two games coming up against Copenhagen. And if they don't win both, they're in major trouble. Major trouble in this group. They're already in major trouble in the Premier League where they sit 10th. We do have eight more games tonight. We've got two 5.45 kickoffs, UK time, obviously, and then six at 8pm. Atletico Madrid against Feyenoord and Royal Antwerp against Shakhtar Donetsk are the early kickoffs. And then Red Star Belgrade against Young Boys, Borussia Dortmund against AC Milan, RB Leipzig against Manchester City, 
Porto against Barcelona, Celtic against Lazio. And the main event, I think everybody would agree, is the new oil classico. It is Newcastle United at home at St. James's Park. First time Champions League has been there in a long, long time to Paris Saint-Germain. That one, I think, is going to be a really interesting game because obviously we know PSG are exceptionally strong in terms of their attacking talent. And we know that Newcastle's primary strength is their defence. But PSG obviously have some really good centre-backs in Milan Skriniar and Marquinhos. Newcastle have some really good attacking players, Alexander Isak being the, the primary weapon there. PSG have not started the domestic campaign well. They've only won three of their seven games, only the one defeat, but three draws there. It's a little bit of a concern for them. They haven't looked anywhere close to their best. They drew nil-nil at the weekend with Clermont Foot, but the game before that, they did hammer Marseille 4-0. And they've just got, like, they've got a lot of depth here. Like, if they're going to play Hakimi at right back, Lucas Hernandez at left back, Marquinhos and Skriniar. That is a really strong defence. And then you've got a couple of options. Kurzawa, Pereira. They're not great, but they're all right. Actually, no, they're not. They're just, they're just flat out bad. But midfield, they do have you know a lot of good options. Ugart, Zaire Emery, Fabian Ruiz, Carlos Soler, Vitinha. They're strong in midfield. Up front is just ludicrous. Usman Dembele, Randall Kolomuami, Kylian Mbappe, Bradley Barcola, Goncalo Ramos. Who's the other one they signed? Asensio. Hey, that's ludicrous. Uh, Nordi Mukieli is their best backup defender. Well, Kimpembe, when he comes back, will compete for that title. But, you know, it's in attack that they have this obscene depth. Really obscene. I mean, the goalkeepers are... You've got Donnarumma and Keylor Navas at the back. It's not bad either. The PSG squad, this is the best squad they've had in the entire time the Qataris have been in charge. Comfortably the best squad. It's got balance. It makes sense. You can put together multiple real 11s. They're missing one player in midfield. If they had if they had a younger version of Verratti, or if they could have just kept Verratti and managed him and kept him fit, I, I think they would actually be my favourites to win the competition because Donnarumma is a top six or seven goalkeeper in the world. Hakimi's a top three right back. Lucas Hernandez is best on the left side of a back three, and that's almost how he's playing because the back four shifts into a back three when they have the ball. But he's as good as you'll find in that specific role. Um... I think Marquinhos is a top five centre-back in the game. I think Schrini is probably a top 10, at worst, low end of the top 10. They're both outstanding. Ugart is one of the best ball winners in the world. Warren Zaire Emery might be the best young midfield player in the world. Mbappe is, in my view, the best player in the world right now, taking into account that Lionel Messi plays in MLS. So he is going up against a lower calibre of opposition there. Now, again, Mbappe is in France too, but still. Uh, Randall Kolomouani is a do-everything centre-forward. And Usman Dembele, when he's 
in the right mindset is unstoppable. And then you've got all that talent off the bench. If they just had that one piece of connective tissue in midfield to go with Ugart and Zaire Emery, and again, Zaire Emery doesn't have to be a starter every game. He can be rotated with the likes of Soler and, and Fabio Ruiz, but they just had that one, like a better version of Vitinha, and Vitinha could be your backup. Then I think they'd be in, they, they'd seriously be cooking. And again, they've got great options in terms of attacking depth. I mean, Goncalo Ramos cost them 80 million. He's coming off the bench. Well, I think it's a loan with an obligation to buy for 80 million. You know, Bradley Barcola is one of the best young forward players around. Asensio still got, still got flashes in him. And he was good last season. But they're, they're one midfielder away from being really special. And there's ways they can mitigate it. They could play with wing backs and whatever. But, you know, when, when Nuno Mendes comes back, maybe you play him left wing back, Hakimi right wing back, you go Marquinhos, Skriniar, and Hernandez as a midfield or defensive three, Ugart and Zaire Emery as a midfield two, who are just there to break up play and shift the ball on. Now, again, there's not a lot of creativity in that, but Zaire, Zaire Emery is a good passer of the ball. And then that front three are devastating. So if they go back three, if they go three, four, three, that might be the way for them. It will work well when Mendez is back. But that's going to be a while. He's got another injury, unfortunately. I'm really looking forward to this game. I think Toon can get a result. I think they could win this game. I think a lot of people are rushing to write them off. But Newcastle are a good team. Like, they are a good team. They've got talent everywhere. And Bruno Gomes is going to be the best midfield player on the pitch. So they might be able to control the middle of the park. They don't have... They don't have Sven Botman tonight. I, I didn't realise that. No Botman. Um, Anthony Gordon is back. Callum Wilson should be fine. Jolington should be fine. No Joe Willock and no Harvey Barnes, who's out until the new year. Um, the Botman, yeah, the Botman absence is massive because he's the best defender at the club. He's a top five centre back in the Premier League. He's the best centre back in the league last season. Um, so that's big. That is big, especially going up against an attack like this. So, is it Jamal Lachelle's? Is it Dan Byrne? What do they do at the weekend? Uh, I can't really, can't even remember what they did at the weekend. Let's see. Burnley lineups. Lachelle's and Shar started. I mean, do you really want to be rolling Jamal Lachelle's out there against the likes of Mbappe? It's a big ask. It's a really big ask. He had a bizarre fall off as well because the 17-18 season, he was unbelievably good. He was he should have been in the England squad for the World Cup. Didn't get picked. And then he's just fallen off massively since. Um, yeah, so there we go. There are Champions League games for tonight. 
Um, Newcastle PSG is the highlight, but you know, Celtic Lazio should be a good game as well. Porto Barcelona should be a good game. Atleti against Feyenoord will be a really good one from the early kickoffs. Dortmund Milan is a good game. Leipzig City, they're like, there's there's an argument made to watch pretty much every game. Antwerp Shakhtar, I mean, unless you want to see one or two players in either team, it's probably not the one for you. Um, notable that Antwerp haven't scored in any of their last four matches. They've drawn the last three, nil-nil. But Arthur Vermeeren is worth a watch. Like, he's he's a really promising young midfield player. As for Shakhtar, I mean, I don't even know who they've, who they've got at this point. Because so many of their best players were foreign players who left uh, because of the because of the war. Um, speaking of, Shakhtar Donetsk's chief reels talks with Tottenham over Manor Solomon. So I said this was going to happen, that there would be some sort of payment be made. Um, Shakhtar's chief executive has confirmed the club are negotiating with Tottenham over a package for Manor Solomon. Spurs were the beneficiaries of FIFA's Annex 7 ruling when they signed the winger on a free. Introduced following Vladimir Putin's invasion, the legislation allows any foreign player or manager playing in Russia or Ukraine to suspend their contracts with immediate effect. And obviously he went to Fulham last season, had the knee injury, came back and looked good. That allowed Spurs to sign Solomon, valued at around $20 for nothing. The controversial changes have been condemned by Ukrainian officials who risked their clubs facing bankruptcy with no money recouped from outgoings. Um, Shakhtar basically just want back the money they paid for Solomon, which is $6.5 million. I think that's more than fair. Like, I don't think Spurs can really complain I think 6.5 million is more than fair. If he's valued, and he, he is, he's a 20 million pound player. You're getting from him for a third of his value. I think that's absolutely fair. Who else do Shakhtar have that might be of interest um, to watch tonight? Uh, Lasana Traore is still there. Pedrinho is there. Dmitry Cherinsky is back playing for them, which I didn't realize. Uh, if you don't remember him, he he was there in the mid-2000s, mid to late 2000s, and was really, really highly rated. Was was been talked up as like the next Vidic. Barcelona got him, spent, spent, uh, spent big money for him, 25 million uh, euro. And he flopped at Barca. It just couldn't settle in at all. Didn't work with him and um, him and Puyol. Didn't work with him and PK. And just binned off after a year. Shakhtar made a Shakhtar bought him back and made a profit of ten million. 
Um, he was there for five years, and then he went to Dnipro for a year. He spent five years in Greece with AEK Athens. Spent last year with Ionicus, who were in the Greek second league. I don't know if they got relegated while he was there. Uh, yeah, they did. They got relegated while he was there. And now he's back at Shakhtar. And he's been really good for Shakhtar for most of his career. Now, the second spell he was there, he was injured an awful lot. But when he played, he was pretty good. Um, he won a Greek league with AK, won a La Liga with Barca, won five league titles with Shakhtar. He's had a lot of success. Won the UEFA Cup with Shakhtar as well, which is where I think he kind of got mainstream attention. But yeah, interesting. Uh, and then obviously you get Red Boy, Red Bull, uh, Red Star against Young Boys. If you want to watch that one, that's up to you. Um, yeah, I'm going to do. I'm going to take a break now. Then we'll go to nostalgia time, and then we'll end with a quick bit of gossip. Actually, do you know what? We'll do the gossip now. We'll just turn everything around. Do it a little bit differently. Uh, in terms of news, uh, Reese James has been given a one-game ban and fined £90,000 for an incident in the tunnel after his side's loss to Aston Villa. Uh, He admitted using improper, insulting, and abusive words of behaviour towards a match match official. Uh, He confronted Jared Gillett, apparently. Uh, David Beckham says he's proud to have been a Qatar 2022 ambassador. There is a new Beckham documentary out. I haven't seen it, but... By all accounts, it is decent. Um, Neither Kieran Tierney nor Elliot Anderson have been picked in the latest Scottish squad. I, if 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 Scotland lose out on Elliot Anderson and Hayden Hackney, that is going to be a critical blow. Those two could have been the foundation building blocks for a really good Scottish team moving forward. Because they've got, you know, obviously got good fullbacks, including good young fullbacks. There's some talented young centre-backs knocking around as well. Goalkeeper goalkeeper and striker is a bit of an issue, but, you know. Steve Clark should be doing everything, absolutely everything, to sell... Scotland to those two. Uh, Kieran Tierney's injured, so that's why he's missing out. Uh, MLS, the Chicago Fire are offering a $250 incentive for fans attending the Inter-Miami match. So Inter-Miami are due to play Chicago Fire today. Lionel Messi is set to miss out due to an injury. Chicago Fire had sold 61,000 tickets for the game. Their record attendance is 37,000. That was 25 years ago. That'll tell you the impact of Messi. Normally, they play in front of about 15 to 18,000. Messi's coming to town, 61,000. So they're offering... $250 towards new memberships for next season or $50 to a single game ticket bar. So basically turn up to this one and we'll give you a free ticket for another one is basically what they're doing or close to 
a free ticket for another one. Um, the Messi impact is incredible. It really, really is. Uh, Jurgen Klopp has said he wants the Spurs Liverpool game to be replayed. I mean, I do as well, but it's not going to happen. So there's no no point in really talking about it. Um, of the gossip, Jaden Sancho is increasingly likely to leave Manchester United in January, with Borussia Dortmund keen on bringing him back to the Bundesliga. It would make sense for him to go back to the Bundesliga. Uh, Everton and England under-21 centre-back Jared Branthwaite is on United's transfer list for the next window. That would be would be interesting. He's he's very very good. I think he's he's got a big future. But I mean, they spent sixty million on the gnome. They play the same position, the left side. Now maybe he's going to move the gnome to left back or into midfield. Maybe Frank Lampard is. <laughs> Excuse me. Frank Lampard is open to speaking to Rangers about the vacant managerial position at the club as the process starts to find a permanent replacement for Michael Beale. Some some cutting things have been said about Michael Beale and his staff in recent days. Um, of course, Frank Lampard is interested. But if Rangers have any cop on, they will not give him that job because he is awful. Lionel Messi has reportedly decided he wants to go back to Newell's Old Boys when his contract with Inter Miami ends. I think I called this pretty much spot on a year ago, that he'd go to MLS, that there'd be part of his deal would be money towards or money off a future franchise, which has been confirmed that that is the case, that he will have an option to go in on a future franchise. And then that he'd go back and play for Newell's Old, old Boys. Now, that's not confirmed. That's just a report. But it, it makes a lot of sense that that's what he would do. Yeah. Leeds, Leicester and Burnley have written a joint letter to Everton's prospective new owners, 777 Partners, that they intend to sue the club for £300 million if they are found guilty of breaking the Premier League spending rules, obviously Everton are under investigation. It's been a couple of years of them breaking the rules. Obviously Burnley were relegated the first year and would have stayed up if Everton had rightly been docked the points they should have been docked. Then last season, Leeds and Leicester will argue they would have stayed up. Well, only one of them would have, but, you know, uh, had Everton not cheated and had they been docked points. So, um, yeah, I mean, fun times for Everton. Seven, seven partners are going to run away. They're going to run away. There's just, it's taking too long. It's become too complex. I think they're going to run away. Um, Chelsea are favourites to sign Victor Osman from... Napoli next summer with Evan Ferguson and Ivan Tony also among their targets. This is an exclusive on code offside. Um, Tottenham could sell Danish midfielder Pierre Emil Hoisberg if they get an offer of 28 million. They tried all summer to sell him for 25 and couldn't. So, uh, you know, Spurs are monitoring Portugal winger Jota's situation with the 24 year old still not registered 
at Al Itahad, having joined from Celtic in the summer. They paid 20 odd million for him, and he's not going to kick a ball for them. Uh, Paris Saint Germain say Xavi Simmons is a huge part of their future amid interest from Manchester United and Barcelona. Barcelona will reportedly listen to offers for all first team players as the club are still operating above the 270 million uh, euro La Liga imposed annual spending limit. Madness. Madness. What a mess of a club. Croatian midfielder Luka Modric could leave Real Madrid as the Spanish club feel he is no longer operating at his best. He has been linked with into Miami of late. Bayer Leverkusen's Dutch left-back, Jeremy Frimpong, who's actually a right-back, someone's just made a mistake here, is set to sign a new deal with the German club, pushing up the value of the player attracting attention from Manchester United and Real Madrid. That could also benefit his former club Celtic, who have a 30% sell-on close. Uh, Frimpong's really good. He's really good. He's a wing-back more than a full-back. I think you kind of need to play a back three to just unleash him and let him bomb forward. But he's very, very good. Uh, we'll take a break then. When we come back, we are going to do the nostalgia bit. So I'll see you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So uh, as a precursor to today's Nostalgia Corner, it looks like we only have one bid in to host the 2028 Euros and one bid to host the 2032 Euros. Now, obviously, the 2024 Euros will take place in France. And they are well set up with stadiums and infrastructure to host such an event. You would hope that they get their policing in better order and maybe, you know, a little bit of better security, a little bit of a better ticket operating system. But, you know, they have they, they have the bones of what they need. Uh, currently hosting the Rugby World Cup as well, obviously, which is has been outstanding so far. Um, so for Euro 2028, the only bid in is from England, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and the Republic of Ireland. That is the only bid submitted. So therefore, it is almost certain that on the 10th of October, that will be announced as the hosting nations of the competition. Now, obviously, all five cannot just be given automatic berths in the tournament, so we'll wait and see uh, how that is done. But uh, I'm happy about this and not happy about it another way. So there were other proposed bids that expressed interest. We'll go to them first. Uh, Denmark, Faroe Islands, Finland, Iceland, Norway, and Sweden wanted to host like a Scandinavian festival. Um, The logistics of it just sort of meant that it fell apart. Portugal and Spain had their eyes on it, but now they've decided to focus, I think, on the 2030 World Cup along with Morocco. And then Romania, Greece, Bulgaria, and and Serbia um, they were also interested, but they are apparently also looking at that 2030 World Cup. Italy and Turkey did show interest, but they abandoned that and pushed them back, and we'll come to them. Uh, the Ger- the Russians put in an offer, but nobody wants to be dealing with them. So it is almost certain to be the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland, which is, is great 
However, initially, this was meant to be Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and the Republic of Ireland without England. And then England were, were brought on board, and now England have taken it over. And of the 10 stadiums that would be used, six of them are in England. And that's just not right. I get Northern Ireland only having one, Caseman Park. I get that. But the Republic should have two. The Aviva will be one. And there's others they could have used. They could have used, obviously... The, the enormous stadium at Croke Park, which is an absolutely fantastic venue. But they could have used one of the GAA stadiums as well. They could have con- like upgraded and modernized one of the major GAA stadiums. Like Semple Stadium in Turles or Parky Cueve in Cork would probably be better because it's in Cork. The Gaelic Grounds in Limerick all of these stadiums are 45,000. Now, they're not all seater, but they could have been converted. Even if it was with safe standing, as opposed to just the stands as they are now. Because GAA fans behave themselves, unlike football fans. But to only get one is a bit of a jip. Like, it really is a bit of a jip. We have two great stadiums in Dublin. We have... Some great stadiums in Connacht. Porky Cueve and the Gaelic Grounds are in cities, so the infrastructure is there. Semple Stadium's in Thurlis, which is a big town, but I, I, fair enough, I can understand passing on that one. Um, I mean, Tolman Park holds 25,000. It couldn't have done a job for a group stage. Of course it could. So I'm annoyed. I'm annoyed about the stadiums. Um, Wales should have had two. You couldn't he use Cardiff Stadium or Swansea Stadium as well as the the Principality or the National Stadium of Wales, I think it's called now. Scotland only gets one, it gets Hamden. I mean, Celtic Park and Ibrox, if you don't want to fall into oh will they pick the Rangers Stadium over the Celtic State or the over the Celtic Stadium or vice versa, Murrayfield is a great stadium. Like Murrayfield is an outstanding stadium. But no. They get one. So if you keep in count, Northern Ireland gets one, Scotland gets one, Wales gets one, and Ireland gets one. And England gets six. Two in London, Wembley and the Tottenham Stadium. Don't really have an issue with either of them. Wembley's incredible. The Tottenham Stadium's arguably the best stadium in Europe. St. James's Park? Really? Really? You couldn't have put one in another one in Scotland? Villa Park? Rather than a second one in Wales? The Everton Stadium? It doesn't even exist yet. Who knows? Who knows if they'll be able to afford to finish it? So I am annoyed about that. But there you go. I'm more annoyed. <laughs> I like to be annoyed about Euro 2032. 
there is only one bit. There is only one expressed interest. And actually, so I tell a lie. There were two expressed interests of bids. One was from Russia, who were never going to get it. Instead, it's going to be Italy and Turkey. How does this make any sense? Like, they're not neighbouring countries. It's a feral whack from one to the other. You know, when competitions have been held between two countries before, it's made sense geographically. This doesn't make sense to me. Like, both of these countries could host a stadium by themselves. Turkey has amazing stadiums. Genuinely amazing stadiums. Italy has stadiums in desperate need of renovation. I assume they'll they'll split it five and five. So you probably get the new stadium in Milan, which will replace the San Siro. Juve Stadium. The new stadium in Rome, if that goes ahead. Naples. And I guess Genoa. The Genoa Stadium would have to be renovated, as would Naples. And then in Turkey, I'd guess I would say the Ataturk. Um, Galatasaray Stadium. Fenerbahce Stadium. There's a new stadium due to be built in Ankara. So I'm guessing there. And then Bursaspor Stadium, which is pretty impressive. They have a bunch of really good stadiums. They really do. They've invested really well in the stadiums over the last few years. Would Trabzon get get used? I mean, it's very far away from everywhere else, but maybe. Istanbul, Bursa, maybe they only put two in Istanbul. Then you get into, well, it's Galatasaray or Fenerbahce, so which do you pick? And if you pick one, you're definitely upsetting the other. So maybe you just pick the Ataturk and pick four from outside. So you're you're then you're losing out on two your bigger bigger capacities. Um I, I just think it's that's a nonsense bid. It really is. Italy and Croatia, I could have seen. You know, they share a border. Italy and Switzerland, maybe, would have made sense. Even Italy and France, but then France are getting the 2024, so fair enough. But still, I I just can't get on board with this one. But look, it's nine years away, so we're not going to worry about it for now. What we are going to talk about today is Euro 1988. We're going to go back. A full 35 years to a different time. Time before the Premier League, time before the Champions League, when things were much simpler. There was Division One, and there was the European Cup and the UEFA Cup and the Cup Winners Cup. And if you ask me, football was a lot healthier back then before money took over and ruined the game. Now, admittedly, I don't have a whole lot of first-hand memories from the time of this competition, obviously. I have 
some very vague ones that I think might be things I've made up in my own head. But uh, I've watched every game from this competition multiple times. I have spoken to a lot of people, including a couple of players that played at it. A lot of people that watched it, attended it, and it 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 is a it was a great great tournament. It genuinely was a great tournament. Um, we had eight teams who qualified from the thirty two teams who entered the qualification. West Germany qualified as hosts. Denmark qualified. They won. So you you only got in if you won your group. So group one, Spain, Romania, Austria, and Albania. Spain qualify, and they go through. Group two, Italy qualify from a group with Sweden, Portugal, Switzerland, and Malta. Group three, Soviet Union qualify over East Germany. France, the holders, knocked out. Major surprise. Iceland and Norway. Group four, it's England topping a group with Yugoslavia, Northern Ireland, and Turkey. Group five, the Netherlands topped the group ahead of Greece, Hungary, Poland, and Cyprus. Uh, group six, Denmark come out on top over the over Czechoslovakia, uh, Wales, and Finland. And then finally, the big surprise of the qualification, the Republic of Ireland topping group seven ahead of Bulgaria, Belgium, Scotland, and Luxembourg. So with Germany and its hosts, you get Denmark, Soviet Union, England, the Republic of Ireland, Italy, Netherlands, and Spain. And what was most notable about Ireland is this was the first time we had ever qualified for a major international tournament. We had been fairly hopeless, it must be said. We'd always produced... The odd gem. Steve Highway, John Giles, Liam Brady. But we never had any success. Until Jack Charlton took over. And whatever it was about Big Jack, whatever control he had over the mentality of his players, his ability almost like a warlock, to make them believe they could accomplish anything, got them to the European Championships. And at some point, I will do the Charlton era for the Republic of Ireland. At some point, I will do that. But not today. So that's where we stand. Those are our eight teams. In terms of squads, we'll go through squad by squad and pick out a couple of notable names. So for the Danes, who remember had gone into the 86 World Cup as one of the the darlings of international football, had played some spectacular football and obviously not accomplished what they'd hoped to accomplish. But in their squad, <coughs> you've got Soren Lurby, was a very good player in his day. You've got Prep and Elkjar, Another very, very good player. John Jensen, who would score one of the goals in the final four years after this. Peter Schmeichel, only six caps to his name at the time. Kim Vilfort, another one who played an absolutely vital role in the 
in the um, 92, sorry, 92 European Championships. Um, and again, he, he did score in the final. Uh, he got the other goal. Um, and what's amazing about his story is that during the competition, he had to leave the group because his daughter had leukemia and her condition was getting worse. So he left the group, then rejoined the group, saw out the tournament, and then his little girl died shortly after the tournament. So he played with that, which tells you a lot about his mentality. Incredibly strong individual. The star of the show, though, was Michael Loudrup, without question. Um, at this point, Loudrup is at Juventus. He had made his name in Denmark with KB and then with Bromby. He almost joined Liverpool, and then Liverpool, for some reason, tried to tack an extra year onto their contract offer. Loudrup got the home and ended up joining Lazio, where he spent two years. Moves on to Juve and really, really starts to establish himself as one of the finest players in the world. And at this point in 88, there's absolutely nobody that doesn't have Michael Laudrup in their top 10 players on the planet. He would end up at Barcelona in 89, play there for five years, go on to Real Madrid. One of the greatest dribblers of all time, one of the greatest passers of all time, a creative genius with the ball at his feet. Unbelievable balance for a guy who at six foot was was tall and upright in his dribbling. Was the best player in Cruyff's dream team. For me, when Maradona fell off in late 90, early 91, Laudrup inherited the throne of best player in the world. And then it was Baggio, and then it would go on from there to the you know the real Ronaldo, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, way for a year, but you know, um, he he was such a special player. Now he had a, a temperament that didn't mesh well with others, and it's one of the reasons he's had some issues as a manager is that he tends to butt heads quite a lot with owners, with sporting directors, with whoever. But as a player, he, he was just a different class. Like, I'm trying to think of more recent players. Like, Luis Figo, similar build, not as good a dribbler, but similar enough in style, not the same level of passer. Iniesta has some Laudrup in his game, but didn't have Laudrup speed, couldn't dribble over distance the way Laudrup could but the same ability in tight spaces. Similar level of passer, maybe not quite as inventive as Laudrup. Like Osel had Laudrup-esque passing ability. So if you could get Mesut Osel, Andreas Iniesta, and Luis Figo, or more modern again, Kvitsa Kvalachkelia, Get his dribbling ability. He dribbles very like Laudrup. Very, very like Laudrup. Tall and upright. Incredible ability to shift the ball one side to the other. Brilliant balance. Would use fence and body swerves. 
to just make defenders miss while moving at speed. You combine those three and maybe a hint more pace, and you've got an approximation of Michael Laudrup. He was so, so special. He's my favorite player of all time. You watch him in that Barcelona team, and there's a gravity to him. When he picks the ball up, the entire mindset of that opposition defense changes. And all focus is on him and stopping him. And because of his ability to pass the ball and dribble through tight spaces, he was able to cre- create so many chances. Even if you look at his assist numbers and you say, oh, well, he's only getting, you know, eight, 11, nine assists across these years. It's not just the assists, though. It's the opportunities he's creating by drawing defenders and then finding an overlapping fullback or slipping it through to a midfielder who's now moving into space. And they play the final ball and they get the credit for the assist. It's Laudrup who's created that opportunity. And when you look at what people have said about him over the years, Johan Cruyff said he's the best player. He was the best player in the world. But there was an obvious issue, which was that Sometimes Laudrup got a little bit caught up in entertaining, a little bit caught up in always wanting to facilitate. Like Michel Platini said he's one of the most talented players ever and said the only issue with him is he's not selfish enough. Raul called him the best player he'd ever played with. Raul played with Zidane, Ronaldo, Figo, Redondo, you know, he played with the Galacticos and he said, Laudrup's the best player I ever played with. Romario said the same and said that Laudrup's the fourth best player in the history of the game behind Pele, Diego Maradona and Romario. I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, Romario, Michael Laudrup was a better player than you. Luis Figo said he was the best opponent he ever faced. Ronald Koeman said he's possibly the most skillful and elegant player I ever played with. If you could dribble like he could, he could sense when a game was ready to be seized and transformed by a moment of brilliance. Roberto Gallia said he played against Maradona, Platini and Baggio. But the one player I saw do indescribable things was Michael Laudrup. Guillermo Morsi is the best 1v1 player that he'd ever seen. Diego Maradona said he's one of the greatest. If you ask, is there a new Maradona? You also have to ask, is there a new Laudrup? If you go back to the time, the three standout players in world football were Maradona, Michael Laudrup, and Ruud Hullet. And for my money, it was Maradona and Laudrup. Maradona on a tier to himself, but Laudrup right below him. Hullet was incredible, but he wasn't on their level. But he could impact games in different ways because of his physicality and his versatility. Thierry Henry named him as the best player he'd never played with. Javier Clemente said, he is the most genius player the world has ever seen. 
John Toshek likened him to Johan Cruyff. Ian Rush said he was an incredible player who probably had the most individual skill he'd ever seen. Christo Stoichkov, every time he talks about him, it's like he's lamenting a lost love. And Johan Cruyff said he would have been maybe the greatest player ever if he had that that selfish kind of streak. But the other thing with Laudrup as well was the game was a little bit too easy for him at times, so he tried to entertain himself. And oftentimes he'd drift out of games. Not often, but sometimes he'd just drift out of games and not have the impact that you'd be looking for. Um, so that's the Danish squad. On to the Italians. We've got Walter Zenga, <coughs> former manager of Wolves. Franco Baresi, greatest centre-back the game's ever seen. Giuseppe Bergam- uh, Bergami, one of the best defenders of all time. Chiro Ferrara obviously will go on to have a very, very good career. He's very young at this point. We've got a very young 19-year-old Paolo Maldini, Carlo Ancelotti, Giuseppe Giannini, who I loved when he played for Roma, Roberto Donadoni, Roberto Mancini, and Gianluca Vialli. So lots of really recognisable names in that Italian squad, which was very, very strong at the time. Uh, For Spain... Andoni Zubizarreta, one of the greats. Jose Antonio Camacho, towards the end of his career here. Still a great defender and a great leader. Sanchez, for me, probably the best Spanish defender ever. Just ahead of Hierro and then ahead of Puyol. Emilio Butragueño, the vulture. Sensational goal scorer. Incredible movement. Brilliant first-time finisher. Uh, Julio Salinas, legendary player. Jose Jose Marie Becaro, another great midfielder. Uh, Chiqui Begerstein. And Michel of Real Madrid, long-time midfielder who had himself a pretty good career. Uh, The West German team, Eike Immel in goal. Uh, you may remember he rocked up at Man City very late in his career. He was 35 uh, in the mid-90s. Guido Buchwald, Andy Bremer, who two years later would score the winner in a World Cup final. Jurgen Kohler, 22 years of age, about to become one of the best defenders in the world. Pierre Litbarski, the great Lothar Mateus, Rudy Vuller, Olaf Thome. So much talent in this squad. A young Bodo Wildner, a young Thomas Bertholdt, a young Jürgen Klinsmann. That's a great, great squad from the Germans as well. And obviously, two years later, they would win the World Cup. But the star name in that squad is obviously Lothar Matthäus, who, as time goes on, has become so underrated. In part, because he was a prick. But, like, this is the guy that Maradona said is the best rival he'd ever had. This is a guy who could play anywhere. Like, you hear about versatility in the modern game, and it's because a lad can go and stand somewhere and give you, you know, five or six out of ten. Lothar Mateus could play right back, sweeper, 
defensive midfield, central midfield, attacking midfield, or wide right, and give you 8 out of 10 as a minimum, as a minimum baseline for his performance level. When you watched him play, his, his long-range shooting was, was pretty special. His passing, he, was, he could pe- play any pass, but he made a conscientious decision to rein himself in and just become like a metronome, like a Xavi type, when he could have been much more of an Alonso type, pinging long balls here, there, and everywhere. He was a brilliant man marker. But it was a waste of him really using him in that defensive midfield role, even though he's one of the best to ever play it. As an all-round central midfielder, we haven't seen anyone better. As a guy who could do literally everything at a very, very high level. Like he's 8 out of 10 in any position you ask him to play, but he's also 8 out of 10 in any aspect of the game, whether it's passing, whether it's ball winning, whether it's positional awareness, whether it's tracking runners, whether it's creativity, shooting, crossing. The only thing you could knock him on is his heading because he's 5'9". But even then, he would compete for them. He was absolutely fearless. And he had a phenomenal career. I mean, he, he started his career in the late 70s with a club whose name I will not try and pronounce, moves on to Borussia Mönchengladbach, plays five years there, then goes to Bayern, then goes to Inter for five years, (coughs) comes back to Bayern at the age of 31, and plays for eight years. The only thing he didn't win in his career, the only thing he didn't win, is the European Cup. He won six total Bundesligas, a Serie A. He won two UEFA Cups, one with Inter in 91, one with Bayern in 96. He got the two, two Champions League finals. In 87, they lost to Porto. In 99, obviously, they lose to United. He won two German Cups. He won the World Cup. In 1990, he won the Euros in 1980. He won the Ballon d'Or in 1990. He he swept the board on all the awards in 1990, 1991. He was Football of the Year in Germany in 1999. Just consider that for a minute. Now, this part of that maybe was a little bit of a, a lifetime achievement award, but he was 38 years of age. So he was still performing at a fairly strong level. He played 44 games that year at 38 years of age. 782 club games. He had that last season with the New York Metro Stars, who are now the New York Red Bulls. 150 caps for Germany in a career that spanned from 1980 to 2000. A 20-year international career. Like, I know Cristiano's going to do that, but that's now with modern medicine, modern training, modern nutrition. This is back then. 
getting booted up in the air most weeks. Now, he is a prick, by, by all accounts. Even by things he said himself, he's acknowledged it. But he could do absolutely everything. Such a sensational player. A guy who could be your 10, but could also play as a sweeper. Just incredible. So Lothar is kind of, after Laudrup, is the second player I, I did want to highlight from this tournament. Obviously, we could do we could do Baresi, we could do Maldini as well, but I think I've talked about them a fair amount. Because um, I did the Saki team and the Capello team, so I've talked about them a bunch. Um, so that was Group 1. In Group 2, we get England. Uh, Peter Shilton, Gary Stevens, decent player. Neil Webb, uh, Dave Watson, Everton legend. Tony Adams, still to this day one of the best centre-backs that the Premier League has ever seen. Brian Robson, who, if not for injuries, Brian Robson would have had an even better career. I need a great career, but he was he was a real force of nature in midfield for West Brom and then for United. He just had so many injuries. Uh, Trevor Stephen, Peter Beardsley, a genius dribbler, genius second striker for Liverpool. Gary Lineker, obviously a goal machine. John Barnes, one of the best players that England has ever, well, England produced, he was born in Jamaica, but you know what I mean, one of the best English players ever. Even if he didn't fully translate his club form into um, the international stage. Chris Waddle. He was a great player. He's historically underrated as well because the thing most people remember him for is missing a couple of penalties. And because he had a weird sort of journeyman end to his career after he left Sheffield Wednesday. But for Newcastle, Spurs, Marseille and Sheffield Wednesday, he was phenomenally good. Then he went to Falkirk, Bradford, Sunderland, Burnley, Torquay, Worksop, Glapwell, and Stockbridge Park Steels. And then he came out of retirement at 54, 53 to play in one game for a team called Hallam. Actually, just on the topic of, of coming out of retirement very late on to play a game, Lothar Mateus in 2018 at 57 decided to come out of retirement to play 50 minutes at 57 in the final league game of the season for the club that he began with, whose name I'm, I'm not going to try and pronounce. Um, lunacy. But yeah, Chris Waddle, really, really interesting player. There's There's been a couple of players that have sort of reminded me a bit of Chris Waddle over the years because he's like 6'1", 6'2". Big, powerful player, but had incredible feet. Unbelievable balance. Could just drive past players. Was one of the first inverted wingers as well. So he often played on the right side, despite being a lefty. Um, had Just had a great, great career. There's somebody I've seen in recent weeks that I thought, that he reminds me of Chris Waddle. 
I'll have to remember who that is. Oh, that's going to really bug me now. I'll I'll remember who it is over the next few days. But yeah, Chris Waddle was a great player. Um, Chris Woods, solid goalkeeper. Viv Anderson, one of the best English fullbacks of all time. Uh, Steve McMahon, quality player. Glenn Hoddle, maybe the most talented central midfielder. Certainly him and Robson. As central midfielders, the most talented England have ever produced. Uh, Mark Haightley. Mark Wright was a great defender. And Tony Dorigo in that squad as well. On to the Dutch. You've got Hans, Hans van Breukelen uh, in goal. You've got Ronald Koeman. Very good ball-playing centre-back. Was a good defender early in his career, but late in his career, he lost his pace and he became quite grabby. So if you put pace around him, he could still be brilliant. As the game was in front of him, he was just incredible. And his, as a passer and his, his long-range shot was ridiculous. He's one of the best goal threats from centre-back you're ever going to see. Um, a young Aaron Winter, who would have a very good career and become a very versatile player. He could play right-back, left-back, midfield, on the wing. Um, Arnold Muren was a quality player. John Bosman, not... The Bosman who brought about the um, the free transfers, not that Bosman. Uh, this guy was a striker who played for Ajax and PSV and Anderlecht and a few other clubs, but very, very good in his day. Um, John Van Schip, Erwin Koeman, younger brother of, or older brother, sorry, older brother of Ronald, uh, Wim Kieft. Never forgiven him. And the big three then are the Milan three. It's Hullet, it's Van Basten, and it's Frank Reichardt, who at this point hasn't yet joined um hasn't yet joined AC Milan. He would join, I believe, after this tournament. He would. He only spent half a season with Saragossa. And obviously from there he would just kick on multiple levels and win two European Cups then before going back to Ajax and winning another one. Um, These are... To have three players of this elite level at the same time is just... is fairly impressive. Some other countries have had it, but... Like, you're talking about in Van Basten a top two number nine of all time. A striker who could do everything. In Rijkaard, you're talking about a top three defensive midfielder of all time. And Ruud Hullet, just as an all-round footballer, at this time, nominally a second striker or attacking midfielder, he's just one of the best to ever do it. One of the best talents, one of the best athletes. And he could play everywhere as well. He was like a bigger version of of Mateus, not quite as good in midfield, but he could play sweeper and he played up front. He could play wide, but maybe the best athlete the game has ever had. Rijkaard is right up there as well in that regard. If you were to clone a 
defensive midfielder for the modern game. And that's the thing with these three. Oftentimes you'll you'll look at the great players from the 80s or the 90s and you wonder how they'd adapt to the modern game. These three were tailor-made for the modern game. These three would be perfect. Reichardt would be comfortably the best holding midfield player in the world right now. And I say that with all due respect to Rodri. Hullet would be a phenomenon in today's game. And Van Basten is scoring 40 a season. Easy. With his movement, instincts and finishing ability, easy. We'll come back to Ireland. Uh, The Soviet Union then, I mean, largely made up of Dinamo Kiev players. Protozov stands out. Kuznetsov was a good defender. Baltacha was a really good defender. There's a bunch of names here of players that I know. I know they're good. I can't say their names. Uh, so I'm not going to say them. But they were a really strong team. The Soviets were really, really strong. And they were managed by the great Valery Lobanovsky, who's the next person I want to touch on here. This guy, when people talk about the best managers ever, so often they forget about this guy. But Lobanovsky is one of the most influential coaches of all time. In terms of advancements in training methods, in nutrition, in the development of sports science in football, he was at the forefront of all of it. Tactically incredible. And much of his teachings and his philosophy of football is evident in the modern game. Like when you really look at the evolution of the tactical side of the game, Jimmy Hogan to Gustav Sebes, and then Sebes, the two managers who stand out as the most influenced by him are Renus Michaels and him. Lobanovsky. But everybody fawns over Renus Michaels. Total football. This guy was doing the same thing. But he was doing it in Eastern Europe. Behind the Iron Curtain. But the success that he had with Dinamo Kiev, with the national team, it's just incredible. And He's never really talked about in the same way that Renus Michaels is. Renus Michaels is lauded because it's an easier tree to see him, Cruyff, Guardiola. And everybody's obsessed with Guardiola. But the Lobanovsky tree has Saki, has Capello, has Simeone and Conte and Cruyff. They're not direct, directly linked, but they borrow from what he did. Now, Capello's obviously direct to Saki, but Saki's not direct from Lobanowski. But Saki's biggest influence, or the one he borrowed from the most, 
was very clearly Lobanovsky. If you watch those Dinamo Kiev teams of his in the 70s and 80s, and then you watch Saki's Milan team, so much of it is taken from the pressing side of things to the aggressive defensive line. Now, Lobanovsky's team were probably a bit more fluid in how they built up in possession. They were more similar to the Barcelona teams of, of Renus Michaels and later uh, Johan Cruyff. But the defensive side of the game, this is the, the guy who's maybe the biggest genius ever on that side. Absolutely incredible. Died so young as well. He was only 63 when he died. He's dead 21 years now. But his impact on Ukrainian football is just, it's undeniable. And the advancements he made were sensational. Like, he he completely... Like, things like analytics in football, he was a big proponent of. He brought science and mathematics into football before anybody else. He's also noted for his man management ability and his ability to get the very best out of everybody who worked with him, not just players, but staff as well. Tactically, he was phenomenal. As an in-game adjuster, let's say, he could just take a player out of the game. So you're playing against his team and one player's having a lot of joy, game over. Lobanovsky just takes him out and his team figure it out and they readjust and they go and win the game. Just different class. Absolutely different class. And the success, I mean, he won the the Soviet top league as a player. But then as a manager, he won the Soviet first league, which was the second division uh, with Dnipro. Then he went to Kiev. He won it eight times, won six Soviet cups, won three Soviet Super Cups, won three Ukrainian National League titles when the the split happened, three Ukrainian Cups, won the Cup Winners' Cup twice, won the European Super Cup, semi-finalist in the Champions League three different times, including that famous 99 run with uh, Shevchenko and Rebrov. European Championships runner-up, obviously, in, in 88. Just, yeah. One of the one of the greatest managers to ever live, uh, and not often talked about enough. On the Ireland squad, then we've got Jack Charlton as manager, big Jack, uh, Pat Bonner in goal. Still for me the best goalkeeper we've had. Uh, Chris Morris, very reliable fullback, could play both sides. Chris Hutton, very reliable fullback, could play both sides, but primarily a right back. Um, <clears throat> Mick McCarthy, who's obviously you know, well-remembered as a manager by a lot of people. Um, but back in the day, Mick McCarthy was a, a very good centre-back for the Irish national team. And his long throw 
it was one of our biggest weapons because we were very much an agricultural team. Much of what Tony Pulis did at Stoke, he nicked from big from from Jack Charlton. The long throw-ins were a key factor in our attack. Um, Kevin Moran, great, great centre-back for Manchester United and later Blackburn. He is the first player ever sent off in a FA Cup final, but he was a really good player. Ronnie Whelan, obviously, all-time Irish great. Paul McGrath, at this point in his career, Paul McGrath was nominally playing in midfield for Ireland as a defensive midfielder. And unsurprisingly, was brilliant at it. Uh, Ray Houghton, just an always reliable, non-stop presence on the right wing. John Aldridge, Frank Stapleton, two very reliable goal scorers. Tony Galvin, hard-working wide player. Tony Cascarino, another option up front. Liam O'Brien, David Kelly, Kevin Sheedy, who famously would score the goal against England in the 1990 World Cup. Uh, Jerry Payton was a long-time backup for Ireland. Uh, John Byrne. John Sheridan was one of my favourite players growing up. Lovely pass for the ball. Uh, John Anderson and Big Niall Quinn, another another target man striker. So you've got four strikers in the squad. Cascarino, Stapleton, Aldridge and Quinn. Uh, and David Kelly, of course, the five strikers in the squad. Um, but, I mean, Quinn and Cascarino were just there to lump the ball up to. No other purpose served uh, by those two. But we had some really good players back then. Like Frank Stapleton was a great player. McGrath, obviously. Ronnie Whelan, obviously. Yeah. Anyway, into the group stage. In group one, in the first game, West Germany and Italy draw 1-1. Mancini scores for the Italian... West Germany and Italy, yeah. West Germany and Italy draw 1-1. Mancini scores for the Italians on 52 minutes. Andy Bremer equalizes three minutes later. Spain beat Denmark 3-2. Michel scored the opener. Laudrup equalized. Butragenio and Gordillo put Spain 3-1 up. Poulsen scored to get the Danes a little bit of late hope, but they couldn't find an equalizer. Then West Germany beat Denmark 2-0. Jurgen Klinsmann and Olaf Thon with the goals. Italy beat Spain 1-0. Gianluca Vialli with the only goal of the game. And then West Germany beat Spain with two Rudy Voller goals, giving them a 2-0 victory. Italy beat Denmark 2-0. Altobelli and Diagostino. Diagostini with the goals. So remember, two points for a win. West Germany top five points plus four goal difference. Italy second, five points plus three goal difference. Spain go out with two points and Denmark take no points. Um... Into Group 2. Ireland beat England 1-0. Ray Houghton with a gorgeous looping header beats the English in Stuttgart. It's a game still talked about to this day. At the time, the greatest moment in the history of Irish football was beating England in a group stage match at the European Championships. Soviet Union beat the Netherlands 1-0. Vasil Ratz scored the only goal of the game. The Netherlands beat England 3-1. Marco van Basten scored a hat-trick. Brian Robson scored for England. Ireland won. Soviet Union won. 
Ronnie Whelan with an absolute worldy on 38 minutes. Protozov equalises on 74. The Soviets beat England 3-1. Alenikov, a name I can't pronounce, and Pasolko with the goals. Tony Adams with the goal for England. And then in the final game, Ireland got robbed. Ireland got robbed. Wim Keefe scores the only goal of the game on 82 minutes. He's a mile offside. The goal is given. VAR, well, you'd hope VAR would have ruled it out. But he's a mile offside. An absolute mile offside. Outrageous. Outrageous. We were robbed. And here's why we were robbed. We went into that game on three points. The Netherlands came in on two points. A draw puts us through and sends the Dutch home. We will never not be robbed. It's simple as that. We'll never not have been robbed. And I'm still bitter. (laughs) Still bitter. Into the knockout stage, we have the two group winners, West Germany and the Soviet Union. And the runners-up, Italy and the Netherlands. So the Soviet Union take on the Italians and West Germany take on the Netherlands. The Soviet Soviet Union beat Italy 2-0. Litovchenko and Protozov with the goals. And the Soviet Union make their way into the final. The Italians bow out. In the other semi-final, this was the big rivalry game. This was the one everybody had wanted to see, as it is in, a, in most international tournaments still to this day. West Germany against the Netherlands. Germany go 1-0 up on 55 minutes. A Lothar Mateus penalty. But a Ronald Koeman penalty on 74. And then a Marco van Basten goal on 88, giving the, giving the, the Dutch the 2-1 win. And sending them on to the final to take on a very, very formidable Soviet Union team. And this game is often forgotten that the that the game itself took place because everybody remembers the second goal. So the Netherlands beat Soviet Union 2-0. Hullet scores the first on 32 minutes. And nobody remembers that goal. Everybody remembers the second goal. The Marco van Basten volley. It remains to this day one of the best goals you'll ever see in your life. Arnie Muren overlaps down the left, whips a big high cross that looks like it's far too high and far too far. And Van Basten has readjusted his run. And it is just, it is just outrageous. It's just outrageous. I still to this day don't know how he scored it. Most players wouldn't even have the audacity to attempt it. The Dutch then did offer the Russians a way back into the final. Soviet Union got a penalty. Hans on Breuklin fouled Gotsmanov. 
Belenov steps up. He's been unbelievable in the tournament. But Van Broekelen manages to make the save and the Dutch win the competition. Um, Van Basten ends the tournament as top scorer with five goals. Protozov and Rudy Voller with four, sorry, with, with four, with two each. Uh, Louder, Polsvin, Adams, Robson, Altabelli, Diagostini, Mancini, Viali, Hullet, Kieft, Kuman, Houghton, Whelan, Alinikov, Leitovchenko, Mykalichenko, uh, Pasolko and Rats, they all score. Butragenio, Gordillo, Michel, Bremer, Klinsman, Mateus and Tone get the goals in the tournament. Your team of the tournament, Hans on Breuklin, fair. Giuseppe Bergami and Paolo Maldini. Very, very young Paolo Maldini, but quickly establishes himself as one of the best defenders around. Ronald Koeman and Frank Reichardt. And the Dutch played like a back three with Reichardt in front. And then as they sank back to defend, it was a back three with Koeman behind. It's very similar to the the Ajax defensive shape in the European Championship, or European Cup winning team with Danny Blind taking up the Koeman role. And Blind and Reichardt had that same type of chemistry that Reichardt and Koeman would have. Uh, in midfield, Giuseppe Giannini, Jan Vuters and Lothar Mateus are the midfield players picked. And then Viali, Rudholt and Marco van Basten. My gripe here is that there's no Soviet player picked. I don't think that's right. They topped the group. They're the best team in the competition up until the final. And none of their players warranted making the team of the tournament. The Seal Rats should have made the team of the tournament. Protozov should have made the team of the tournament. But for some reason, they didn't. But this was a really, really good tournament. In Germany, where the stadiums were great, the atmospheres were fantastic, every game pretty much was sold out. You had eight, the best eight teams in Europe. No watered-down games. Every game mattered. As you can see by the scores, like nobody gets hammered. Nobody loses a game or conversely wins a game by more than two goals in this competition. And even then, there's only five games decided by two goals. Everything else is a one goal. uh, Sorry, the seven games in total, five in the group, one semifinal in the final. But every other game is a one goal game. Every other game had drama. There's There's very few boring games in this competition. There's tension, there's drama, there's battles, there's good level of physicality. But I'm always happy that other than the the Dutch in the final, the only team to stop the Soviets winning were Ireland. They beat the Dutch, they beat the English, they beat the Italians. They couldn't beat Ireland. So even though they lost the final to the Dutch, they did beat them earlier in the tournament. Now, if you want to go aggregate, the Dutch would win 2-1. But still, the only team 
that the Soviets couldn't beat at that competition were plucky little Ireland in their first ever international tournament. So in many ways, we're the real European championships. I'll see you you tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.